Hello there and welcome to another episode of the Crisperian Show. Today's topic, we're going to do a four-part mini-series, Burgundy in the nutshell, right? I mean, I'm a big fan of Burgundy, Burgundy wines in general. I love Burgundy. That was one of my passion. I mean, you, everybody who you ask, I mean, sooner or later, at any tastings, Burgundy will come out. Because this is the holy grail of the terroir-based classification system, right? Everybody is trying to copy it, whether it's the American viticulture areas with the AVA in, uh, in the United States or in um, Austria, the DAC, the DAC system is, is itself, right? With regional, village, and also vineyard classification or the VDP, uh, VDP in Germany. Basically, the holy grail Burgundy. And everybody appreciates and loves Burgundy for this reason because it's so unique, it's so diverse. Dig down deep into the Burgundy, into the history of Burgundy a little bit, as well as the well four main regions, if I may say so. Four main regions, I just categorize them into four main regions. Of course, this is a very simplified version. In the four regions, the four topics which we're gonna discuss in four different series, it's gonna be the northern part, around Chablis, Axerois, Tonnery, uh, Chablis, of course, Chablisienne, and then moving down south, the Côte d'Or. Here we're going to do two sections, one, of course, Côte de Nuit and Côte de Bonne, so two and three, and then further south, here you can make a difference, of course, between Côte de Chalonnais and, and the Maconnais, but we're going to do this as number four in one, one part. So Côte de Chalonnais and Maconnais as one. And of course, the greater Burgundy historically seen may also include Beaujolais, but for the sake of simplicity and keeping it simple as well, we're not going to include Beaujolais as such. We're going to do this maybe in a different series when we're going to talk about Beaujolais, Cru Beaujolais and so on and so on. Digging right into the first part, history. I mean, the history goes back not just to the Romans and the Celts, but also to the Phoenicians. 1,300 years BCE, Phoenicians were traveling through Burgundy and they probably used the wines as a toll to pay for the passing route as well. There's no necessary mention of production of wine as such during that period of time, but uh, wine was mentioned as a payment instrument. And then coming back to the Celts, of course, which we mentioned, and the Romans. Emperor Probus, Emperor Prob Domitianus, early before him, of course, played a major role in wine history. So the Romans generally played a big, big role. Down in the 5th century, and you can you ask yourself, where does the name Burgundy or Bourgogne actually comes from, there was a group of people coming from the northern part of Europe, northern Europe, so mainly what we call today Scandinavia. They traveled through what we call today Germany down to this area. There were the Le, Le Bourgondes, and excuse my French, this is not my best. Les Bourgondes were the first group of people in the fifth century who traveled down and we most likely say that the name Le Bourgogne uh, comes from here. Now, Clovis, uh, Emperor Clovis, uh, King Clovis actually defeated them uh, back in 534. They married one of King's nieces, Clotilde. Through this uh, marriage came also Christianity, basically, and also very important epoch, the, the various monks and the various uh, monasteries being founded in, in the Burgundy area. Monasteries played a significant role uh, during that time for, for yeah, literally for over, over 1,000 years, actually. And they are, some reckon that they are the very foundation of the appellation system as we, as we know it uh, today. 
the Benedict, the Clunis, monasteries and monks, uh, just to put it everything literally in a nutshell, because about Burgundy, you could talk day long. And then fast forwarding, you know, the monks, the monasteries and the dukes, which played a huge and crucial role in shaping and developing Burgundy as we know it today. In the 18th century, to be very precise, 1789, the French Revolution, right? This was the year 1789-99 when the French Revolution came a significant movement when uh, the people, the kind of uprise, if you want so, uh, has changed and gave the power to the people, also the majority or some part of the land ownership. They got that. And also the Napoleon Code was uh, established uh, during that time, which led to the fragmentation of the land ownership, which is also crucial today because Napoleon said, you know, every child should get the same portion piece of land in terms of ownership right so this became the fragmentation I'll give you an example so if you are the father you had 10 children you had 10 hectares has been 10 hectares have divided uh, into one hectare each right for the children and then if your child again has 10 children just to simple math then you know you had to divide a one hectare into the fragment of 0.1 hectare in terms of that just to keep it very very simple and then moving fast forward in the history, 1935 was, not, was another milestone for Burgundy. The appellation system has been created. Appellation Origin Controle, AOC, as we know it today, or to be precise, today is AOP, but it's literally the same, to put it very simplified, was mainly against fraud, right? I mean, this was something which says that you have to protect the origin. So if your grapes are grown in Burgundy and you make wine out of it and only in Burgundy, you may call it Burgundian. So of course, this was kind of inhibiting the chances that you were blending wines from southern France or even from outside of France uh, into the wines of Burgundy. So this was a protection for consumer and also protecting the name, the name which later has become a very important brand, as we know it today, right? I mean, this is, this is the very early making of the brands. So this is very briefly the history of uh, Burgundy, the Romans before that, the Phoenicians being a trade, trading with wine, Celts, uh, Romans, and of course Clovis, and then the monks, Christianity, the knowledge, the setting up the vineyards, historically, you know, writing about them, what works there, what goes uh, where. Then the dukes played a very important role. And then the French Revolution in uh, 18th century, of course, changed a lot of things again. And then 1935, the AOC as such. Going into that area, the northern part of Burgundy, and this is very interesting because technically speaking, if you just look at the soil, the soil structure itself, you know, the area around Chablis resembles more the southern part of Champagne, the, the central Loire Valley as such. Soil-wise, it belongs to the Paris Basin versus the Rhone Basin, which is more in the southern part. So this resembles a little bit more Loire and um, southern part of uh, Champagne. Now, Going down into that area of northern part, right, where we have uh, actually three main rivers. We have the Yonne River around uh, the Axeroir. We have the Le Serene River uh, around Chablis. It actually uh, divides the vineyards into right and left bank, right being the, where the Grand Cruz are, and left uh, Premier Cruz and, of course, the other ones. And the Tonnerrois region, which uh, the Le Armasson River goes through, much, much, much smaller area. So these are the three rivers which uh, kind of flow through the area. And then you have the highway number six, the A6, which connects Dijon in the south, 
Cordon, just north of the Cordon, with Paris. So you have the A6, which goes through Grand Axe Roi uh, region, if you want. And this is going to be our first um, topic. We're going to talk about this limestone marl, clay, soil-based uh, area diversity, which is also very important. And you have chalk here often, which uh, r reminds a lot of people like a thick limestone stone deposit. This is what chalk reminds. And if you remember, you know, drawing in school with chalkboard, right? This kind of uh, notion, having that, uh, especially in the white wines, that kind of chalky minerality, something which is, is super interesting, definitely. So anyway, coming back to that region, the Grand Axeroir, as such, you know, dividing into Axeroir, Chablis, Tonneroir uh, area. Talking about Axeroir as such, and here, the earlier what I just mentioned to you, you have the Paris Basin, there's very little to no tectonic movements, there's a lot of sediment accumulated, a lot of sediments accumulated, and this plays an important role in the soil creation as such. And then earlier I mentioned that this area is actually closer to the center of Loire, and there you go, you have one appellation called Saint-Brie, place um, with the name of Saint-Brie-le-Vineux is the name of the commune and the wine simply uh, called uh, Saint-Brie. And this is Sauvignon Blanc or Sauvignon Gris sometimes, but it's Sauvignon Blanc. So it's not Chardonnay, but Sauvignon Blanc. And if I recall rightly, the Saint-Brie and the Loire, Sancerre, Poulifumé or Kensi or Rui, uh, Sauvignon Blancs, which are just around the center area, they're pretty similar for me. I mean, maybe there in Saint-Brie, there's a bit more steeliness. Maybe there's a little bit more that kind of flinty character, perhaps. But it is Sauvignon Blanc. For me, if I recall it correctly, from my tastings, the varietal character is probably a little bit overshadowed by the soil, by the terroir itself. But this is, uh, again, I just tasted a few Saint-Brie's, but it does resemble a little bit the Loire's uh, flinty, chalky uh, note as well, and very terroir-driven. Now, jumping right into the south, the appellation is called Veselay, Veselay in the south. Again, historically, here you see again that, you know, Melon de Bourgogne, or Muscadet variety, used to be historically important in this area. And again, this resembles a little bit more the Loire than the rest of, uh, right? We have two varieties, uh, Sauvignon Blanc and Melon, which today are not really <laughs> part of Burgundy. I mean, there are permitted varieties, of course, but this is not what we're talking about. And you have this variety, South Melon de Bourgogne today. Veselay makes just white wine. It is Chardonnay today, but in the past, historically, there was also some Melon de Bourgogne. It's a little bit more riper style of Chablis. You could call it, if you want to compare it to Chablis, it's a bit more riper. Simply, it's a bit more suddenly, southern place as such. And there is another appellation which is definitely interesting to talk about in the Axorar area. It's Irancy. Irancy is red wine. And uh, in, beside Pinot Noir, you have a very interesting variety called César. Now, you may include up to 10% in the blend of Irancy. César is a very interesting variety because it gives you a lot of color. It has a very dark skin. Originally, it's from Spain, and today it's often also planted in the Jura uh, area. It's a cross between Pinot Noir and Argonde. And Pinot Noir, we all know, of course, but Argonde is very interesting because Argonde is a dark-skinned variety. And this is where actually also César, the variety César, gets the color and the body. So César is usually used giving color and body in the wines. 
cross between Pinot Noir and Argonte, uh, the César variety. And coming back to the variety Argonte, which is again also dark skin variety, and it's most likely originated in Spain and also fairly popular in the Jura area, France. We're going to jump on the other side, going over the Yonne, going over the Les Serene River, and uh, talking about the, well, you could say the northeastern appellation in the Grand Axe is Tonare. Tonare, there's one area, very small one, just 70 hectares, and makes red and rosé, very fruity ones. It's called Epinu, and Epinu is probably the most famous appellation there in the Tonare. Now, coming to Chablis. Everybody was waiting for Chablis, of course. This is, for many people, the highlight. And it's 100% Chardonnay, Chablis, the the region itself, this kind of 5,700 hectare area, has been divided by the Les Serene River. So part of the Paris Basin, there's been little to no tectonic movement, but a lot of fossils. And you have this kind of Kimmeridgian in, uh, Dors in Dorset. Uh, there's a village called uh, Kimmeridge, and this is where this particular soil has got its name. You get this lo lot of, and excuse my Latin again, <laughs> Preoxygria virgula, this marine fossils, Preoxygria virgula, small oysters, small shell, small oysters, and this is kind of 5,700 hectare area. It's very interesting, very old, over 155 million years old, compact layers, which uh, happened there, marine fossils, debris. Chablis is 100% Chardonnay, we talked about that. And but basically, the hierarchy comes into play. You have Petit Chablis, which is in the outside circle. Often people say there's more younger Portlandian soil to be found. Portlandian soil has, a, has little to no marine fossils. Now, the Portlandian soils you would find also in other parts, not just in the Petit Chablis area, but most likely it is... Uh, mainly found in the Petit Chablis area. But the big difference, what I would say, is uh, the elevation. Petit Chablis, this kind of 1,100 hectare in terms of size, is uh, on the elevation of between 230 to 280 meters. So it's much cooler. Higher elevation means coolness because with every 100 meter, the average temperature decreases uh, by 0.6 Celsius degree and you need more time to ripen. So this 1,100 hectare higher elevation, well, if you compare it, the 17 villages, which the communes, which are included in the Chablis area, so imagine a triangle, you know, Petit Chablis, Chablis, the classic historical area, if you will, this kind of uh, 3,600 hectare is on an elevation between 100 to 150 meters, so slightly lower, so the ripeness course is, is better as such. Now you have within Chablis, you have Premier Cru and also different kind of Ludi names as well, different climas. Not every clima is, is used as Premier Cru. Sometimes they're blending different Premier Crus together and they just call it Premier Cru Chablis, of course. So you have Chablis and then you have Premier Cru basically, again, in terms of hierarchy is important because you need to have lower yields, you need to have more concentration, natural sugar concentration, in terms of high alcohol and so on and so on. And at the top of everything is the Grand Cru area. So yeah, the Grand Cru place, again, between 100 and 250 meters of altitude, we have 106 hectares of uh, Grand Cru areas, which makes 1.5% of the total Chablis area, which is Grand Cru. And there are seven climates seven vineyards, if you want, which bear the title of Concru. You have the village of Chablis here, and then you have the river on the, on the right side, 
right? It's flowing to the north. You have from north to south of the Grand Cruz, you have the first one, which is Bougro. Bougro is around 15 hectares. It's a south-southwest exposure. There's a lot of uh, clay and marl with a slightly less intense exposition. Then the next one, slightly higher up, is Preussé. Is 11 uh, hectare. There's a very old Roman road as well, which goes through there. There's a bit more clay, and uh, you have uh, on the top, you have a higher plateau. Very good drainage is there. So, Bougro, Preussé, and then 16 hectare. Vaudesir is the next one. So, you have kind of attached everything together. Vaudesir on the, the third one coming to the south is 16 uh, hectare in terms of size. It's very sunny. The sun basically stops there, right? This is what they say, and usually this gives very full-bodied and uh, rich, uh, rich wines, because people say the sun stops there. And then coming further south, closer to the river, right, and this kind of mosaic is uh, Grenoulet, a small one actually compared to the other ones. It's nine hectare. People usually say they give usually very spicy, intense, and opulent wines. Uh, one of the big corps owns a lot of a uh, lot of vines. In this particular Grand Cru, so Grenoulet nine, uh, Grenoulet nine hectare, very opulent uh, wines, and then slightly more in a V-shaped going up is Valmur, thirteen hectare and very good ripeness because it's a bit more steeper, it goes a bit more higher to the plateau as well. Some people compare it actually to the Côte d'Or because the grapes ripen here very well and gives you a kind of very spiciness, freshness. There's a little bit less air movement but it, it, has, it has a good roundness and, and richness, uh, Valmur. And the biggest of all, and maybe the most famous, who knows, but this was one of my first experiences when I tried Grand Cru Chablis, is Le Clos. Le Clos, classic, you know, just a few letters, easy to remember, maybe this helps as well, right? It's, a, it's also the biggest one, 27 hectare in terms of uh, size. It's a southwest explosion, very warm area, you know, it goes around and it, it is basically the best, uh, best situation of, of, of everything in terms of exposure, in terms of drainage. This is what people really appreciate uh, at the most. And yeah, and call it, uh, call it the finest uh, of all. And then last but not least, Blanchot, which actually goes to the next uh, commune through to the most southern and going a little bit more to the east uh, is Blanchot. 13 hectare in terms of size you have a southeast explosion in terms of vines because very finesse very elegant but also good ripeness as well so Blanchot is also regarded as one of the finest uh, Grand Cru's amongst um, Le Clos I would say maybe number one and then between Vaudésir between Vaudésir and Preuss an official number eight La Mouton which is uh, an official Clima um, La Mouton they're very interesting one also often mentioned but because there's one winery who owns everything it's a different story but beautiful wines i tasted them i love those wines so yeah this is burgundy within burgundy northern part axora chablis and tonnerre chablisien those three areas in a nutshell main focus on chablis and we will continue with our next one going to the a little bit more south to dijon and then continuing south of dijon into the Côte d'Or, to be very precise, into the Côte de Nuit.